Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and powered by Higginbotham. I'm your host, Jeremy Park, and on this episode, we're shining a light on depression and suicide, a very important conversation with Tom and Ellen Harris, co-founders of the Jordan Elizabeth Harris Foundation. Let's start out. Tom and Ellen, how are you doing? Well, we're doing great right now, Jeremy. Actually, we are in the beautiful state of Maine, where we uh, spend a lot of time in the summer. And it's quite a bit cooler here than it is where we live in Texas. I was about to say, I'm sure it's a lot cooler between Memphis and Texas. You're a lot cooler there than yeah, you are we're a here lot in 100 degrees. So we're, yeah, we're very happy right now. <laughs> we're blessed people, for sure. The fun of the Changemakers podcast is we get to dive into your personal story. We'll talk all about the good work you're doing with the foundation, but let's start, get to know you personally. So I'll, I'll leave it to either one of you, but let's start with a little bit of just your childhood and where you grew up. Okay. Well, I guess I'll start. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Swampscott, Massachusetts. Swampscott's on the North shore of Boston. At the time I was growing up there, I think maybe there were 20,000 people in the town, maybe, pretty idyllic little on the shore town. I went to college at the University of Massachusetts, and I don't know if you can see my husband's Uh t-shirt. He played football there, and that's where we met each other. I I played a lot of sports in high school and less sports when I got to college. But we met each other at a fraternity one night and uh, got married four or five years later, I guess. I did. Yeah. Nice. Tom, what about you? What, talk about your childhood. So I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the cliff notes. So grew up in this very small town in Baldwinsville, New York, upstate, uh, a little bit north of Syracuse. My dad was a World War II veteran. Neither my mom or dad uh, uh, went to college. Uh, they found a way to to get all four of us through Catholic schools and in the in and around the city of Syracuse. Like Ellen said, I had the opportunity to go to uh, University of Massachusetts and play football there on a scholarship. Uh, lucky enough to meet Ellen. And uh, we got married, lived in Boston for a couple of years. And I was working for an organization that was owned by American Airlines, got transferred to Arlington, Texas, which is what brought us to Texas, thought I'd be there, or we'd be there two years, and 40-plus years later, we still live in Texas. So um, uh, very blessed, very fortunate to be able to be doing what we're doing today, not only for uh, the company that I work for, but with the foundation that we've created. Absolutely. We were just recently in Boston, amazing city. When you look at the character and the people and ease of access, I I was blown away. And obviously Fenway and the sports history. So for each of you, what's one favorite memory of Boston? Well, uh, the first concert that I ever went to was at Boston Garden and it was the Rolling Stones and the backup group for the Rolling Stones was Stevie Wonder. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so that was a lot of years ago, but uh, that was a very, very fond memory for me, for sure. 
the original, excuse me, the yeah. original Boston Garden before they turned it into something else with the parquet floors and everything. Tom, what about you? Two real quick ones. I was in the at the uh, Boston Red Sox New York Yankees playoff game in 1977 when Bucky Dent hit his home run to win the game and allow them to go to the World Series. Probably one of the few Yankee fans in Fenway when that happened. So luckily I was with my football buddies and they protected me. Uh, I'd say the other one was the, uh, the, the awful winter storm, the Nor'easter in 1978. We lived on uh, the beach, we being myself and four of my buddies from UMass. And uh, for four days we were hunkered down there. And on the fifth day, my lovely bride, who was then my girlfriend, walked from Swampscott to Revere Beach uh, on a beautiful blue sky day through probably a foot, foot and a half of water and uh, and was nice enough to come visit me after the, that awful storm that we dealt with. So Everybody had been cooped up for so long. It was just it snowed nonstop for four days. And when it stopped, they had declared a snow emergency. So there were no cars on the road. It was an incredibly beautiful day. Everything was covered in white and everybody wanted to get out. And so people were just outside walking and pulling their kids on sleds. And, and I started walking and I just kept walking. And how many miles was that? Probably about 12. Oh, wow. Wow. We were so nice. Well, anyway, it's long, it's long it was a long walk. <laughs> Long walk. It wasn't around the block. <laughs> you mentioned Yankees and Red Sox. Do is there a sports rivalry in the family at all? Well, Ellen's probably a Red Sox fan, but not a big one. But I, my dad was huge, huge Yankee fan, and I grew up a Yankee fan. So there you go. <laughs> well, let's talk about moving to Texas, and you know, Tom, on your end, working for Hillwood, and really amazing storyline in terms of Alliance Airport, your background in the industry. Give us a little bit on the business side, and then we'll switch over and talk about family and the foundation. So I took somewhat of a circuitous route to the the organization that I work for now. After having worked for American for many years, I worked here in Arlington for them and then down in uh, Austin, Texas at the old Robert Miller Airport, which was a downtown airport that's no longer even there, I had the opportunity to go to work for the Department of Aviation for the city of Austin, working at that airport. And the gentleman that I worked for there was recruited by Ross to Ross Jr. Thank you. Um, Ross Perot Jr., forgive me, to run Alliance Airport in Fort Worth when it opened in December of 1989. And uh, I was hired in April of 90 to, to go to work for the aviation companies at Alliance to manage the day-to-day operations of the airport, but also be the service provider. For the most part, that means that we were the aircraft fuelers there and have been ever since uh, working for the city of Fort Worth on their behalf, basically still managing and running the airport and providing those services. When I showed up in April of 1990 with Alan, a golden retriever and our 18 month old daughter, Jordan, I stood on the ramp, uh, aircraft parking ramp, and looked as far as I could see, 360 degrees, and there was no vertical development. There was a runway, a taxiway, a 10 by 20 foot trailer that was the air traffic control tower, 
10 by 40 foot trailer. I had a couple of fire department guys in, in it and a bunch of Cessna 152s doing touch and go landing. So that was April of 90. So now we're in 2022. Um, we've been very, very fortunate to be able to do the things we've done, but essentially we are helping the city of Fort Worth and some of the other surrounding cities build out their their cities. Uh, there's 65,000 people who go to work there every day. There's 550 companies there. Huge ec economic development driver for the community. Um, just very, very lucky to be a part of that. When you look at the changing dynamics, really around the economic development, airports, the vital role, logistics, all of those pieces. What's something, and you mentioned obviously looking around 360 at that period versus where you are today, what's something that really has put a smile on your face when you look at the impact managing through all the transitions and where we are in this moment, but what it means looking forward? Well, I was one of the, the early hires and I will tell you, we work for a tremendous organization and a tremendous family who from day one had a great vision of what Alliance might be someday. And I would tell you that being a part of the team that the leadership team that has been able to do what we've done, there's something very special about looking out your window of your office and knowing that you had a lot to do with that success. And basically, when you think about our, our, our project, it's a huge 28,000 acre development project that ranges from the, the, the north side of 820 all the way up to the city of Denton uh, along the 35W corridor. So we're 30 plus years into it and we still have a long way to go. So uh, we're very excited. Talk about your approach to building relationships. When you talk about especially projects of that magnitude where you're not looking at just the next year, you're looking five, 10 years down the road, everything you're talking about, and you have to have multiple stakeholders coming together to play their role. So it's a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of vision casting. It's a lot of managing expectations. What's your approach to being able to be successful with all these moving entities? So great question. And I will tell you that if you look at our logo, it's a triangle logo. Um, and the corners of each of that logo represent the, the, the three partners that came together that made Alliance happen. And that's the city of Fort Worth, the FAA, and Hillwood. And the very first large piece of infrastructure was indeed the airport. And the FAA came together with the city of Fort Worth and us to put that airport project together. The, the relationships part of the equation is, is, is simply uh, described. You, you couldn't have done it without partnerships along the way. If you look at the fact that we are in six cities, three school districts, and two counties, and the, the work that goes into creating the relationships with those jurisdictions in order for us to be able to do what we've done developing additional infrastructure, uh, being able to put uh, economic uh, development projects together with those partners, uh, the customers that we have today and the relationships that we have with those customers. Uh, we have spent a lot of time building a team that focuses on those relationships on an ongoing basis. So we're not just your your what I would call a traditional developer, where we come, buy land, build buildings, and leave. This is truly a legacy project at Alliance, and Ross Jr. views it that way. 
Um, and as a result of that, we've had a great run. We've, we've been able to, for the most part, be, uh, ha have those very strong ties to the community, which I think has made a huge difference uh, and, and enabled us to have the success that we've had. Let's go ahead and switch over. You mentioned moving to Texas, 18 months, you know, Joe, your daughter. And so talk about the Jordan Elizabeth Harris Foundation. Let's start, though, getting to know Joe. So talk about Jordan. Talk about your daughter. Talk about your family. Yeah. Well, in addition to Jordan, we uh, we also our oldest child was uh, Seth Jonathan Harris. And he we lost Seth to SIDS when he was three months old. That's when we were living in Austin and uh, Jordan was also born in Austin. As Tom said, then we moved back up to Fort Worth. And uh, shortly after that came uh, Matthew, our son, who was now 30, and Alicia, our daughter, who is 28. And Matt lives uh, in Houston currently with his wife and his 10-month-old son. And Alicia lives in Chicago, uh, loves Chicago and is working for Rush Hospital, which is a really large hospital uh, in Chicago. So all children are special. And Jordan was, was a special child. And um, she kind of lit up a room when she walked in. She had a beautiful smile. She, was, uh, she had a beautiful, joyful personality and um, pretty normal childhood sports and, and, um, and just involved in a lot of things. She was also uh, very bright. She was a valedictorian of her high school class and she went on to get an academic scholarship at the University of Michigan where she thrived for the first three years, three and a half years, and then just developed severe, severe depression. We got a call uh, one morning from her very close friend and roommate who had spent the night with her at the uh, emergency room at Michigan where her friend had taken her after she was concerned that she might harm herself. So um, we, uh, I went up and we talked about what had happened and Jordan at that time felt strongly that she could, she could finish the semester. I think this was the, maybe the end of November, the beginning of December. And she finished that semester, came home, went back to school the beginning of January, and then uh, she needed to come home. So we brought her home with us. Things just weren't working out for her. And we had never dealt with a serious mental illness in our family. So we didn't really know what it meant for somebody to be depressed. And she did an incredibly good job of hiding her depression, which we believe has a lot to do with the stigma associated with any kind of mental illness. She didn't want people to know. She didn't want to be a burden to us. So she pretty much pretended that everything was okay. Uh, in hindsight, there were signs that, that she was dealing with severe depression that we missed. We did everything we thought we were doing right. And um, one day she went to her volunteer job that she had. It was interesting because she had decided she was going to try to go back to uh, the university. She wanted to finish her last semester. 
the night before she died, she was on her computer looking for therapists because we had told her that if she was going to go back to school, we wanted her to find a therapist as soon as she got back up there. So this was the night before she died. She was looking for a therapist and had all kinds of plans to go back to school. And the next day she went to her volunteer job and she didn't come home. Wow. I would say too that the Ellen mentioned that she was pretty special. And I think one of the reasons that made her special was she was very a giving person. There were, there were a number of causes that she thrust herself into. For example, when, when she died, she was volunteering for Catholic charities. She worked for the battered women's shelter that summer when she worked in Boston. She worked for a, a, a Ghana relief effort at the University of Michigan, collecting expired materials and supplies from hospitals, loaded up containers, and then went with those supplies over to Ghana and, and became part of a team to distribute those supplies to small villages in Ghana. So she was always wanting to do something to help others. And, I, and, in, and candidly, certainly in part, that's what drove us to do something in her name, because she was that kind of person. And I think it's important, too, when you look at this, I mean, you're talking, you know, over a decade ago and the stigma, especially for someone who's a high achiever, when you're talking valedictorian, always helping others, wanting to make a difference. I mean, that's a high achiever. And to your point, like you kind of bury this, these things that you're going through. And even now, I mean, that's around, that's central to the core of what you're trying to do is make these conversations that are so important, make them happen so that people do go get help and know where the resources are and, you know, all of these things, the information around it, but really destigmatizing these conversations to make them commonplace. And also that us, everyone plays a role in getting people to open up and normalizing the conversations but also helping our loved ones, our friends, our family, our coworkers, helping them to find the help. I think, you know, when you look at a decade ago versus where we are today, hopefully things have gotten better, but that's a big part of it is we've got to open these points because especially for high achievers, they're hiding it and, and they're going through this inner turmoil as a result. And you don't know because they're not sharing it. I would almost say it's like those who uh, you mentioned, you know, your father on the veteran side serving in war my brother's same thing, serving a war, but he, does, he doesn't talk about those. So getting them to open up almost as therapy sometimes is very difficult, but it's it's necessary. Back up, because I, I, for each of you, share one moment with Jordan that puts a smile on your face, like a special moment for her, just, you know, that's special for you personally. She, uh, she was a prankster. So Olis and the family and routinely would, would prank her younger brother and her younger sister. And uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I'll tell it anyway. So she, I, I think it was April Fool's Day, and she decided she was going to put saran wrap over the top of the toilet when my, my son decided that he needed to go to the bathroom. And all of a sudden... Yeah, you can visualize what might happen. Uh -huh. yeah. And the Alicia part was, remember the Alicia part? Oh, yeah. She went to the uh, pet store and she bought a chocolate chip cookie, a doggy cookie. 
a couple of them actually. And she just, she, she handed to, to Alicia in a bag, the cookies and told her that she bought them at the store. Right. <laughs> and of course, Alicia ended up uh, taking a bite out of it. And Jordan went hysterical. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she was, she was just, she was a really, she was a really uh, fun. She was incredibly fun to be around. That was, that was why uh, one of the reasons I'm sure that people were so shocked to find out that she, she had taken her own life because she was always, always joyful. Uh, all, all of our kids were athletes in high school. So needless to say, as a mom and dad, uh, we had a lot of fun watching them, you know, play various sports throughout high school. And those, those are special times. And I tell the, the next generation, the younger people who have kids that are in grammar school, middle school, high school, enjoy those times because they are gone in a flash. So as you hang out with your son playing tennis, uh, enjoy every bit of it. I'm sure you do. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I look at this too, when you talk about her and always trying to make people smile and laugh and have fun and pour into them on the giving side, comedians, musicians, you see it a lot with those who are always trying to brighten the lives of others that they internally are facing their own darkness, but we on the outside don't see that. I think it's really important for us once again, to kind of have these conversations because those who you think are pouring out the most light sometimes have the most darkness inside them that you've got to help them kind of power through. And so I think these conversations need to happen. And unfortunately, you know, the darkness, but turning darkness into light for others. And so talk about what you do, because it's a lot around awareness. It's a lot around, you know, education, resources, suicide, depression. Talk about everything you do with the foundation. Well, I just want to bring up one thing when you were talking about how important it is to have conversations. Our major fundraising event every year is a luncheon. And it is incredibly successful. First of all, the name of the luncheon is the Bring the Conversation to Light luncheon. Uh, It's been incredibly successful. The first year we had it, this was the first year we had the foundation, we had 700 people there. And since then, we've averaged around 1,000 people that attend this luncheon, one-hour luncheon. And I believe that... Part of the reason for that is that this is a safe space for people to talk about a subject that is very uncomfortable to talk about and be surrounded by people who have experienced the same sorts of things that they have. And the reason that we started, one of the reasons we started the foundation in the first place was because as soon as we were able to really share Jordan's story we were amazed at how many people had stories to share back with us. Like 90% of the people that we spoke with, they either lost somebody to suicide. They've been dealing with depression their whole lives. It it didn't matter. They they had a story to tell us. And and at the time, nobody in, in our area in Fort Worth, Texas, was really talking about it. And like you said, things have changed and have gotten much better, but still there's, we have a volunteer in our organization who is, um, I would say, a, she's a 50 something year old African-American woman 
who who is who recently lost a family member to suicide and wanted to become active with us because she felt so strongly about participating with the organization and had to ask her mother first. This is a 50 something year old woman because of the stigma. There's a huge stigma in the African-American and the Latino community when it comes to suicide, huge. So yes, are we making progress? Yes, but there is still a long way to go. So the things that we do as a foundation really are focused on education, awareness, and advocacy. We have a a school program that's called Hope Squad. It's a peer support uh, training that takes place uh, in schools with counselors, teachers, and a representation of students. And and very simply, the way it works is we, we train students how to recognize kids that are in trouble and then how to refer them to the appropriate people inside the school. Um, that metric's very important to us, and that it's one that we keep very close tabs on in the schools that we actually do these trainings in. We're in 110 schools in North Texas right now. Um, we also have adult training programs that, that focus on a program called QPR. QPR stands for Question, Persuade, Persuade and Refer. Another two-hour training for parents who want to understand how to handle somebody who they think might be struggling. It's not easy. It's not something that comes, you see somebody that's in trouble. It's not necessarily something that uh, is easily um, or that person's not easily approached. So we do that. We raise money for depression research. There's some very good research efforts going on at places like UT Southwestern. University of North Texas Health Science Center and and JPS, the public hospital in Fort Worth. Uh, So we we really are focused on education, awareness, advocacy, and also raising money for research, uh, depression research. I'm thinking, you know, when you look at the question, persuade, refer, QPR, um, that's obviously a really important one for the public to definitely, you know, know and dive into deeper dive into that one, especially, and and maybe just share some tips. In other words, when it comes to parents and being more mindful, better understanding, especially like you mentioned for students peer to peer, what are some of the top tips that you like to make sure and put out there for the public? Well, I think that's a challenging one for parents of teenagers because their behavior changes often and maybe they're sullen often but I think really important ones are kind of changes in sleeping habits, for example, either sleeping all the time or not sleeping enough. Uh, that was something that, uh, that, that one of the symptoms that Jordan had was that she just wasn't sleeping. And um, we knew that that was a problem, but we didn't, we didn't see it as, as a serious symptom of depression, and it is. If there are changes in their behavior, if there are, they're acting out, doing things that they otherwise would not have done in the past, if all of a sudden they're not interested in, in the things that they were in, always interested in doing before, they don't want to be around their friends. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's really just things that look odd, that look different in the behavior that they're, that they're um, 
that they're showing is, I, I think, really the most important thing. What and, and whether it's a teenager or an adult, I mean, the same thing goes. I, look, there are varying degrees of depression. There's no question about that. And I think the most important advice we can give people is is to try to uh, start the conversation, have the conversation, and and also at the same time uh, find that individual uh, help uh, and encourage that individual uh, to get help either from a therapist or a psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. Um, and sometimes help could mean uh, having their best friend talk to them or their their brother or sister talk to them. But the important thing is to try to get them to open up and talk about it. I think being a noticer, paying attention, being mindful of that, and also acting on that and having those conversations and, and taking it serious when you're doing it. I think in some cases you can disregard it and, oh, you know, it, it's okay. You know, you want to snap your fingers and think it's going to get better when in fact they really do need help. So I think being the noticer, but also taking it serious is very important. And I'm thinking, you know, sadly in, in the media world, to your point, when you talk about normalizing it, you interview so many people and they have lost loved ones. And I'm even thinking there was one in particular where the son had reached out to a friend of his and he didn't know that the very next day, or actually later that day, he was thinking about committing, committing suicide, but he called and he checked in because he'd noticed something was off. So he took it upon himself to check in, make sure he was okay, invite him out to go do something together because he didn't want him to be alone. He just knew something was off. And so I think, you know, and, and the friend credits that was saving his life. And I think being a noticer, being intentional, taking it serious, acting on it, those are things that really are important in the scheme of things. And, and you might not never know the impact you're having on somebody else, but just paying attention to them and asking them. And then, like you said, knowing how to refer them to get help to the experts, you literally could be saving lives, including your own son or daughters. Right. 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 One of the things that we're really proud about with regards to the Hope Squad program is in last year, the school year of 2021, we had almost 700 kids referred for help. And that's 700 kids that otherwise might have fallen through the cracks. So it's really important just to be observant, especially, uh, especially like I said, if you're noticing that things are, are different. Uh, another one is if they start to give things like prized possessions away to people, that's also a sign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I tell you too, with the pandemic and everything that's gone on over the last two and a half, three years, you know, this roller coaster ride, how that plays a, a really important role in depression and suicide and all these things that we're talking about. Um, it just makes it that much more magnified in terms of what you're doing. You have a number of opportunities to plug in, one of which goes literally from the Canadian border all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And so talk about this ride and some of the ways that we as a community can plug into your efforts. Well, uh, I, I mentioned before we, we started today that we actually did a ride in 2017 that was from uh, Fort Clatsop, Oregon, uh, to St. Louis, to DC, uh, the Lewis and Clark trail backwards. And I candidly, at the end of that ride, I told my buddy who I did it with, uh, don't ever ask me to do something like that again, but here we are again, it's 2022 and we're going to ride from the Canadian border following the Mississippi all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. 
We have uh, on bicycles. On bicycles, yes, not on motorcycles. Um, we have what looks like 24 riders that will do all or part of that ride. Um, and really, the, the purpose of this ride is to reach out to communities outside of Dallas-Fort Worth and, and, again, start the conversation or encourage people to have the conversation with us along the way, share their stories, and certainly have us share our stories. I, there wasn't a person or community that we didn't ride into in 2017 where we were talking to people and didn't get a story back about some loved one, some friend who was either struggling or who had taken out their life by suicide. So what we hope to do is uh, meet with people along the way. We've got meetings, some meetings that are already set up in the communities that we're going to be in. Uh, the website is lightthetrailride.org. Uh, you can get on the website and you can support riders. You can make donations. Uh, there's an opportunity to ride in specific segments. So segments from Minneapolis to St. Louis, another segment from St. Louis to Memphis. And then the last segment from Memphis to New Orleans, if you'd like to ride with us. We look you want to tell them a little bit about what the ride entails, just so people would know. Like, Well, it's 1,800 miles plus. Uh, we're, we're trying to do it with teams of four. So unlike the first ride where we, a couple of us did the whole thing, which was 3,450 miles, this ride is a team of four. So if you're on my team, you ride the first 50 miles in a day. I ride the second 50 and the third rider rides the third 50. So we cover 150 miles a day and over, we'll do that over a two week period. So you, you, you need to be a fairly stout cyclist to do this, but if there's a team of four that would like to join us out there, we'd happy to be able to talk to them. Uh, or you, again, you can simply get on our website and support riders uh, and or make donations on our behalf. And all of that, that the, the fundraising that we do along the way will be used to support uh, our programs in, the, in North Texas right now. We're in 110 schools today. And we'd love to see that number grow beyond that. And uh, we've got a great team of folks that are full-time employees that work for the foundation now that help us do that. So uh, that's really what, what we intend to do here, hopefully the first two weeks of October. We're also, we'll also have a virtual option for people who can't get out and actually ride on their, on their uh, cycles with us. We're still working on the logistics uh, for that, but uh, that's another opportunity if you don't see yourself being able to do 50 miles a day, three days in a row, which is a lot, then you'll have a virtual option too, which will also be on the website. Absolutely. Well, the good news is, as we mentioned before we hit record on this, we do know a lot of cyclists and a, a lot of riders. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, we can, we can get some people out for sure. And to your point, I mean, it all supports a, a powerful cause. And so when you look at getting out and obviously doing the ride, there's a much higher purpose for the ride in terms of what you're doing and elevating awareness because at each stop in the way, getting the media out, getting people out, having those conversations with families, um, I think is so important as a part of this process to just continue to build that conversation, to continue to push in all these different directions and to normalize these conversations. 
Give us one more thing when you look at, especially over the next few years, some of your major goals. I mean, you mentioned obviously getting it in more schools. So what are some of your major goals over the next few years? If I can backtrack for one second, I think another thing that we'd like to to, uh, have available for people as we're going along this ride is the ability to start an organization like this where they live. We'd be thrilled to let people in on how we started and how they could do the same thing just to expand it. We don't see ourselves expanding uh, more than the state of Texas, for sure. There is plenty of opportunity for us in that in that huge state. Uh, and there are other organizations that do similar things to us, too. So we also don't want to encroach on what they're doing as well. But Uh, Lots of rural uh, uh, communities not far from where we are that could really use some resources. I'd love to be able to expand. We'd love to be able to expand into some of the rural communities and uh, and do more of the trainings, get more volunteers out because, you know, we have a limited bandwidth with the people that are employed, but we also have lots of people who are interested in volunteering too. So getting more people trained to offer like train the trainer so we can offer these programs where they live and meet them where they live instead of just offering them in our kind of little general vicinity. So, and Jeremy, I've always been uh, intrigued and, and surprised about the void that was in our community and the void that we filled uh, with things that we do in the schools and with adults. There wasn't another organization like ours that, that, that did those kinds of things, nor is there today, at least on the west side, I would say, on the west side of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But I think um, this thing can get as big as we let it. I think we envision the the numbers of schools that we're in to grow dramatically here. I will say this about the dialogue uh, related to mental health, that it is truly different than it was 10 years ago. And that's a good thing. I think you, the media has picked up on it and helped in that regard. I think people are understanding that, that in today's world, both adult and children need perhaps more help than they did uh, in the past. Um, and, and the culture related to that, I think, overall is truly changing. Long way to go, but I think we're getting better. I agree. And I look at it too, in the sense that you're having well-known musicians and actors come out saying, I'm going to get treatment, whether it's drug and alcohol, depression, whatever it is, but normalizing that, seeing these people that you look up to saying, no, I need help. I'm going to get help. All of these things really do help to normalize and, you know, move the needle in the right direction for these sort of conversations. And I agree hundred percent in the sense that what you're doing is relationship driven. It's people helping people, people noticing people that are going through pain. You got to be focused on each other to be able to do that. And so while there is tremendous need, being able to say, no, we want to collaborate. We want to work together. We want to obviously do our part with what we can control, but we want to be able to share and give and and all work together for this common higher purpose, especially realizing that in schools, high schools, colleges, where depression and suicide are, are, you know, peak, um, especially among high performers and achievers, there is a lot of importance around what you do. And in the rural communities, which as you mentioned, in many cases are under-resourced. And so there is tremendous potential for you to change the narrative, but ultimately save lives as a part of what you're doing that I think really is powerful. 
How has all this changed the way you look at your own family? I mean, especially when you look at your children and each other and what you've gone through and the difference you're making, how has it changed your perspective on what family means? That's a great question. Look, when you're thrust into something like this because of tragedy, your life is going to change one way or another. And, you know, after six months or so passed when we lost Jordan, a very good friend of ours and the gentleman that actually rode across the country, a guy named Isaac Manning, came came up and said, was with the idea of putting together this philanthropic effort in her name. My, the things that I believe in, the things that are important to me, and I'm sure Ellen feels the same way, uh, are so much different after we, you lose children than they were before. And I think, you know, life, life is tough and everybody has their, their crosses to bear and some are larger than others. But uh, our way of handling our loss was to try to help other people. That doesn't mean that everybody should do that. It just means that it was good for us it, it helped us, I think, stay together as a married couple. We were able to support each other by doing this. And uh, we're, we're very fortunate people to, to have been able to do what we did. I have one really important thing to say, in my mind, is important. Um, both Matt and Alicia were at the University of Texas in Austin at the time that Jordan died. And as soon as they went back to school, we got them in therapy. And I believe, number one, because of the amazing therapist that we had, that they had, but number two, that they actually went to therapy right away, had a huge impact on how they were able to cope with the loss of their sister, who they idolized and adored. So I think that therapy is an amazing tool that anybody who has the ability to take advantage of it should take advantage of. Yeah. I'm glad you added that. I I agree 100%. Absolutely. So wrap up, we'll, we'll do a lightning round, which will just be some fun. Like where do you enjoy eating, especially, you know, in general in Texas and when you're on vacation and stuff, but we'll call that the lightning round, but wrap up with words of encouragement, because obviously, as you mentioned, it's dramatically different 10 years, you know, in terms of where we are today, when you look at, the road ahead. Give us some words of encouragement for what puts a smile on your face with where we're headed with all of this. I think that when we walk into a school or when we meet with adults at the adult education uh, efforts that we have, um, I mentioned earlier the the story we get back. Um, I think people are much more open today uh, about, you know, having these types of programs in front of them whether it be in school or for adults. I'm encouraged because of what I mentioned earlier with media highlighting mental health and, and the importance of people's mental health much more than they did 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I Look, their teachers and administrators have a lot of choices about for programs that they have in schools. Hope Squad is one of a couple hundred programs that are available to people out there. The important thing is that our kids have something that they can latch on to when they're in school. And it doesn't have to be the Hope Squad. It can be what, whatever other program that, that they want to look at. 
So uh, I'm optimistic. The numbers are still high. COVID didn't help. The isolation related to COVID didn't help. But I think if we can, if we can get people um, people back to work, which you know, <laughs> depending on who you talk to, that's a good thing or not such a good thing. Uh, but we can get people to interact with people more, uh, get out of the house, and uh, try to 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 uh, you know defeat that isolation that came with COVID. I think we'll be okay. I'm in really I'm really encouraged by young people because I think young people are so much more willing to open up about their mental health challenges than we as adults ever were. So I and I'm also encouraged too about how different and things really are so much different than they were when Jordan died. I can remember when she first got sick and we were uh, taking her to, to see a therapist and we got advice from a very trusted source of ours who recommended to us that we not put it on her insurance, on our insurance, because a potential employer down the road might find out that she was in therapy and perhaps that would keep them from hiring her or give them the wrong impression about her as a person. That sort of thing I think is still around, but a lot, a lot less than it was 10 years ago. So I really am encouraged that there are just so many more people who are willing to, to share what they're going through and encourage other people to, to get help. That's the most important thing is I, just getting the help. I would add to say what Ellen just said, I think corporate America, uh, has really picked up on that uh, that point where now with with most benefit packages for employees of Fortune 500 companies they they include coverage for mental health services and and I think that's just fantastic and I, I, we've got to do more of those things I I worry about uh, those people who don't have great insurance uh, but even with that in a place like Fort Worth with MHMR in Fort Worth, they have tremendous resources that are available. It's just, it's getting the people connected to those resources is, is part of our challenge. Let's switch over and do a lightning round. So we'll just do a few short questions, short answers, just having some fun. When you have visitors to Texas, what are some places you like to take them to? Well, certainly the stockyards in Fort Worth. That's an incredibly popular place, as well as Sundance Square. And I think Fort Worth has some of the best museums in the state of Texas too. So the, those would be, uh, those would be my choices. Places to get great steaks downtown for sure. Uh, this little community up on the North side called Roanoke is kind of a go-to uh, foodie town, if you will. Uh, Babe's chicken is there and a place called classic cafe has been there for 25 plus year run by a couple of brothers who do a fantastic job. Where's a favorite vacation spot for your family outside of where you are right now? What's another favorite vacation spot? You know, we had some incredible family vacations in Colorado with a little pop-up camper that we had when the kids were little. Colorado is just the most beautiful state, no matter what time of year, really. So I think Colorado, and then we also went to the Northwest yeah, as well. Oregon and Washington. Beautiful. 
What's a favorite tradition? It could be around the holidays or just an everyday tradition. What's a favorite family tradition? We have a cousin's party in Maine. My mom was one of nine, grew up in Portland, Maine. We have 32 first cousins on my side of the family. I don't know how many second and third cousins there are. Many of them are up here. So we generally, about every other year, have a cousin's reunion in Maine. But it used to be every year, remember? When the kids were younger. Yeah. 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 There's no place like Maine in the summer. That's for sure. But don't anybody else come. (laughs) (laughs) you don't want too many people to enjoy it (laughs) still keep it top secret (laughs) so uh putting on your boston hat what's a what's a spot for our next trip to go to boston what's something that we have to go and see and do oh well the freedom trail i took uh my daughter alicia and i took a trip to the freedom trail when she was studying ap u.s history it was unbelievably motive moving for her to see all of these places that she was studying about that she could actually feel like this is history here. But there's so many things to see in Boston. It really is just such a fascinating city. And then you could take a little side trip down to Cape Cod, trip down to Cape Cod too, which is a beautiful place also. Two things, Italian food on the north side. You got to go. There's a lot of choices there for restaurants. And then the Museum of Fine Arts, just tremendous history in there from all over the world. Uh, My sister happens to be a docent there. And if you're really nice to us, maybe we can hook you up with a tour. (laughs) Very cool. And then what is a quote that inspires you? You don't have to get it verbatim, but what's a quote that inspires you? I have a rock engraved on my desk at home that simply says, never, never quit. I'll go with that one. I'll go with that one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, it ties into everything that we've talked about, but many, many years from now, what do you hope your legacy is for you individually, but obviously most importantly for the foundation and the work and your impact? So what do you hope the legacy is for the work that you're doing with the foundation? Well, my hope is that it continues even after we're gone. That's because I don't, I don't see I, I, th- what part of our mission statement for a long time was eradicate suicide. I, um, that, that is kind of pie in the sky goal, but yeah, very aspirational. But wouldn't that be an amazing thing to get everybody who's dealing with some, some, form of mental illness into help, that, in my mind, that would be incredible. Well, our legacy is not important. The legacy of the foundation certainly is, and I would agree with Ellen that uh, uh, we, we hope that it's here for a very long time, that it can continue to grow and have, have a very positive effect in not only our community, but other communities around the country. The, the Hope Squad program is actually started by a, a superintendent in Provo, Utah, uh, a guy named Dr. Greg Hudnell, and fantastic guy. It's in 1,400 schools around the country right now. And we'd love to see those numbers grow, and, and we want to be a part of that. 
Well, and that's where speaking it into existence. It's amazing when you start talking about it, good things happen. So you mentioned the website for the Light the Trail Ride, but go ahead and talk about both the website for the Jordan Elizabeth Harris Foundation and the Light the Trail Ride. Where do we go to carry these conversations forward, to learn more and to get involved? The foundation website is jordanharrisfoundation.org. And there are links there to the Light the Trail website and to all of our events that we've got going on, as well as resources. Not all the resources we have on there are local. There are national ones, too. And I think it's also really uh, important to mention how wonderful it is with the new 988 telephone number for people who are, who are in crisis who don't have to try to remember that 800-273 suicide prevention lifeline. So um, just just to promote 988 wherever you can so people understand that there's a, an easy option for them. On the Light the Trail Ride uh, website, you'll see a, sec- a, a menu item called Ride 4, R-I-D-E 4. And we did this on the last ride. And we at, at the beginning of the ride every morning, we we read all the ride fours that came into us on our website. And the ride four simply is, okay, I'm Tom Harris and I live in, in Fort Worth, Texas, and I want to support the ride, but I want to share my story. And the ride four is two or three sentences on what your story is. And we'll take those ride fours and we'll read them every morning as they come in. And it's a simple way for people to support the ride and at the same time, remember, someone that they may have even either lost or someone who they know that might be struggling. And we would dedicate that day's ride to whoever, whoever it was. And we got, we promoted that on the Light the Trail website and got all kinds of names and pictures of people. We had no idea who they were, but we, we dedicated each day's ride to one of those people. And it was incredibly moving for us to do that. And I know it was really important. The one thing I think, especially when you lose a child is you don't want that child forgotten ever. And for us to be able to honor these people who have been lost, uh, I think was a really important thing for us as well as them. Absolutely. Websites again, jordanharrisfoundation.org, lightthetrailride.org as well. So Tom, Ellen Harris, thank you for being change makers. Thank you for all you do. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Wonderful, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Change Makers podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. To learn more about our guests and share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com or follow us on social media using at citycurrent. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now, think big, start small, and act now. Be a change maker.